the bar is high and it should be high and it needs to be high and it needs to be done in collaboration with providers and clinicians. At the same time, we need to also work towards what is a good future look like for health? What is an ideal system look like for an individual accessing healthcare? Is that a um, you know, a central repository with all of this information where a, an individual can have their history, their genetics, their um, environmental data, and we can use that in responsible privacy-preserving ways for AI and predictive medicine. I want to try a different introduction. So I'm going to say my name, Dr. Clinton Coleman. You're going to say your name, Dr. Suraj Sugger. And then okay. in unison, we're going to say welcome to Recommended Daily Dose. You want to try that? In unison? Yeah, like together. I've seen people do it. It sounds pretty cool. All right. Uh, it's, it's, it reminds <laughs> you like middle school, but no problem. Never mind. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> well, we have a special guest Dr. Estelle Gerard, she is a population genetic scientist turned leader in biotech and frontier medicine. She's also the co-founder and CEO of Trellis Health, whose mission is to build smart, comprehensive health records focusing on pregnancy and new families. So today we're gonna to get into probably some health tech, some health information and privacy, and she's gonna tell us what Trellis Health is. So welcome to the show, Doc. Thank you so much. I'm really excited to be here. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, so give us a little bit about your background because uh, this isn't, I think the first time we've had someone with your training, your academic uh, uh, inclinations on our show. And so I think having a little background about you would be very helpful for all of us. Yeah, absolutely. So at a high level, I'm a scientist, a PhD population genetics scientist. Uh, I spent the early part of my career in academia and then transitioned into industry, really at the rise of genetic testing technologies as those were really taking off from a, a technology standpoint and spent about eight years at a company called Illumina. Uh, most people don't know them, but uh, that's the technology that powers companies like 23andMe, Ancestry DNA. Um, oh, can I interrupt you? Oh, I knew this yeah. was coming. I knew this was coming. As soon as you said 23 me, I knew this was coming. Go ahead. 23. No, no. I recently had a genetic testing from African Ancestry, which is a company that yes. uh, is geared toward people of my exposure. Yes. Um, it can tell you your maternal um, background information. So I recently found out that uh, my ancestry comes from Cameroon. It's the Bamaleki tribe, which is for people of my texture is a really important thing because a lot of us don't know where we come from. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, I was scared to do that, but you know, that's such a, yeah. for people like me, it's such a, a, a mind changing thing as far as knowing where you're from. So I just wanted to interrupt it's, you, but yeah. No. And, and it's that, I think you get at the core of why this is so important. It's so personal to who we are yeah. as people to have some knowledge around, you know, that genetic background and that makeup that we have. And it's something that you don't see, you can't interact with until you get it tested. And then you find some information about yourself and, and people, yeah. 
respond really well to that generally. I mean, privacy, we can talk about privacy and everything around that. There's so many topics that you can talk about with genetics, but um, I really spent, uh, you know, eight years at the forefront of genetic testing in medicine and in consumer genomics. Really this idea of, can we take this genetic information that we can start to know about a person and provide better healthcare? So not just ancestry information, but more predictive, personalized healthcare based on a person's genetics. That's Um, that's a huge, obviously, uh, uh, arena of medicine, what we call personalized healthcare based upon... um, Genetic information based upon the microbiome, which is another big thing in the infectious yeah. disease world, right? Of how human gene- genome interacts with our microbiome um, uh, and how that complexity turns on, turns off genes, and how it can be manipulated and et cetera. But um, I'd like to take a step back as you're going forward. You said you worked with Illumina. So what what uh, what is the technology exactly that now has been that been brought to the forefront that makes it more applicable or, or more widely available? What is the, yeah. It really, it's around um, cost and, and scale, and that brings with it accessibility. So, you know, uh, people maybe aren't familiar, but we had a, a research project, the Human Genome Project, about 20 years ago. And that's where I'll interrupt you, because that, that's where my interest is. Even though I ultimately went to medicine, I, um, after college, I did MPH, and I was very, you know, on the cusp of thinking maybe doing PhD, you know, so. Yeah. Uh, and I, I'm sure Dr. Coleman would have preferred I stay in the lab and never came out and, uh, <laughs> And, <laughs> but so I, I was, um, I was at NIH for two years and I was in building 10. I was in, mm. in the, on the human genome project for something called MEN1. And, um, and I saw a lot of people then suddenly leave that lab as I went to med school and they went to in the DC, Virginia area, Tiger, which is private industry, the Institute for Genomic Research. So, um, mm-hmm. yeah, but so, you know, that was my forte in genetics and that's where I left it back in 97 when I went to medical school. So, and, right. But how, 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 tell us the evolution from, from that point, that'd be very interesting. Yeah, so that, I mean, that was the, the forefront of kind of moonshot, right? We, we want to know what the human genome is. Yes. And it was a huge endeavor. Many years, you know, scientists, hundreds of scientists all over the world cost millions, billion dollars uh, to do that. Now, what, and it was an incredibly manual process with Illumina technology, um, they're able to do that largely in parallel at scale. Uh, and so you take the cost down from, you know, a million dollars plus through a hundred thousand dollars plus per yeah. genome to $10,000 plus per genome. Now we're down and we have line of sight to a hundred dollars per genome um, on this technology. And so, and that cost reduction and that scale yeah. has happened so fast, faster than Moore's law. So, I mean, we're in tech space now we're talking about technology, but Moore's law is, is the notion yeah. that computer chips get cheaper, right? So mm-hmm. law of technology, Illumina's uh, sequencing technology was decreasing in price faster than Moore's law. Uh, it's mm-hmm. a huge inflection point. And so when you think about cost reduction, the applications open up, you can start to do things in population genomics that would not have been feasible from a monetary perspective before. And then the more you understand about populations, the more you can understand how that translates into health. So it becomes an applied science really fast. Well, I will appreciate that, that background. You've actually, as we said, took something very complex 
and broke it down and explained it very efficiently. So thank you. Yeah. So I guess, I mean, we're kind of still on my background, but yeah. I transitioned that because I saw this problem, you know, again and again in healthcare where there isn't a really good place for this information to live. There isn't a good data layer, data infrastructure layer of our healthcare system. This is a problem felt by everybody, everybody that interacts, clinicians, everybody in the system feels this. Um, At the same time, I really care deeply about privacy and and kind of ownership of this genetic data that's critical. And so to cut a long story short, um, Trellis Health, uh, we're really building a health data hub and a, a place for families to collect this information about themselves, whether it's genetics, um, medical information, information from their environment, kind of all of it in one health data hub. And then we built software tools on top of that to allow people to manage, specifically women to manage their pregnancy healthcare journey. Uh, better to kind of fill in some of those gaps between pregnancy is a really unique aspect in someone's life. You're thinking about genetics, you're getting genetic testing done. You've got broad and deep measurements happening. You're, you know, whether it's heart rate or blood pressure or sleep or uh, weight or, you know, whatever it is, you've got multiple aspects of what constitutes health information all happening at the same time. And so we're just creating tools for women to, to manage that in a more efficient way. You think pregnancy was, I guess, the, the impetus to, to try to coalesce that? Because I think it's a no brainer for me to try to get all the information in one place, because I think some of our frustration as clinicians is trying to get the proper information and keep it in Absolutely. one repository. I think with the in a, in a pregnancy situation, you know, most of the care is pretty centralized. I would assume it's centralized. So, uh, my question is, what you know, what are some of the challenges did you run into in trying to keep all that information, I guess, coalesced in one space? Yeah, then I'll just go like, for instance, does this uh, hub uh, interact? Um, you know, with all the EMRs. I mean, at our own institution, we have an EMR in the ER, an EMR in the outpatient, mm-hmm. an EMR mm-hmm. in the hospital, which is home. Every home. doctor mm-hmm. has their own different EMR. You know, Everybody it, 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 it is, it's, it's somewhat insanity for a lack of a better word. So oh, when I want to send a record to Dr. Sugar, I have to scan it, print it out, fax it to him. He has to upload it oh. to his system. And it's, imagine doing that multiple times. It's, it's, it's a waste of paper. It's a waste of time. So. Yeah. And from a patient perspective, I obviously don't have a clinician perspective, but I was going through this just the other day. I have 20 plus logins. Like, you know, even if you're using the same EMR system, I have a different MyChart login, a different password. Yes. Um, The experience isn't great all around. Uh, And I will say as well, this is not a new idea in healthcare. I think people have been feeling this pain point for a while. It's Mm -hmm. kind of the holy grail of can we build a system that everything is all in one place uh, and and people can access that as they need to, et cetera, et cetera. Um, So a couple of things. I deeply care about the, the health professional side of this. Having said that, I spent a decade selling a frontier technology and a really kind of a a future health vision situation into healthcare. And it was extremely challenging with Illumina, right? The way the healthcare structure is, and if you're selling into 
a hospital that then has to get everybody on board, their, their chief information officers on board, their security people. It flows down through the doctors, the primary care practitioners. They then have to get their patients on board and every single hospital that you go to is different. And so for a startup, for a company building in that space, um, it's just a really challenging problem to solve and you end up fitting into the systems that already exist. Right. Our philosophy is you can build a better system in parallel to the existing systems that, that kind of happen today. And then you need a care journey that allows you to do that and is supplemental to that care journey. And so we don't wanna focus on you know, a cancer patient or somebody where you really do kind of need that, um, that, that really close kind of handholding. What, what we're thinking about with maternity health um, is that we can be supplemental to their relationship and their information access with their OBGYN. And through, I don't want to get into too many details here, but another aspect is around private is around um, timing. So there have been huge changes in, and regulatory inflection points around access to EMR records from a consumer standpoint um, with the 21st Century Cures Act, um, with some of the health information exchanges that exist, this is getting easier and easier to deal with interoperability. And so from a consumer standpoint, it's getting more frictionless as well. And so, you know, our long-term vision is that um, we, we build in parallel and then we're able to integrate back in and, and, and really kind of help support clinician workflow as well, provide a workflow as well, but we don't want to limit uh, and, and kind of just fit within the, the existing problems of the industry by building within that from day one. When you say build parallel, like if I use, um, like Epic is one of the big players or McKesson, yeah. are you saying you're building in, in concert with them and then at some point um, can, can uh, be, it can interact with those systems or is it something different? Because um, I mean, I, not that those are the only systems that are out there, but those are certainly two of the big ones. Yeah. Even Epic is probably even bigger than McKesson. Um, but then our own institution has its own homegrown system. Um, yeah. So how, how um, well, first of all, this is, there's so many things to discuss. I mean, you were also just talking about the culture and I, I'm still old enough to remember uh, when I did my training that we used paper charts, right? And then when we were switching yeah. to EMR, there was a lot of talk about, you know, can, can you, should we do paper? Should we do EMR? And it just seems funny to even think about that because obviously now everything is EMR, but um, you're right. The that reason, culture, but the reason culture, why that, that, that took some time, that took some time. Yeah, but it. no, but the reason why it changed is because the Medicare mandated that uh, we had to use EMR. So do you think that's going to be the future of this, these health care repositories is that, you know, the insurance company will mandate that everything is kept in nice, neat little packages or um, or you think that's up to, because I, I think if you approach it from the doctors making effort to organize the information, it's going to be a, a long battle. So I don't know exactly. who, who's going to be responsible, if it's patients or. So you're insurance. saying if it's, if, it's, if it's mandated by the federal government, CMS, then there's no choice, right? So, right. Um, so I think the mandate now from, you know, regulatory guidance is that we need to move towards more of a system where consumers have access rights to their data uh, and to make that process easy. So 21st Century Cures Act says that a patient 
uh, an individual has the right of access free of charge via API to their medical data. Um, that's what's being mandated. So that's the shift that you're going to see. And it's less so for the hospitals, it's more so for, you know, the epics of the world to be able to support that capability um, for access. I think, um, say, I mean, when you, say, when you say access, does that mean, so now we're getting into some of the legal uh, issues, right? Yeah. So, um, wouldn't they be, uh, I mean, don't, doesn't anyone have access? Or what, what is the current situation in terms of access to, genetic information, because I think that's always a, a tricky thing when we discuss with our patients. A, they, you know, sometimes they'll say who controls this data, and, and of course there's a lot of yeah. misconceptions of where the data goes and when how that will uh, haunt them, so to speak, or influence them if they go to try to buy insurance. Or And then there's the other issue, which is a more a different issue, which is um, sometimes patients tell us they don't want to know, right, if, if they're genetically yeah. or something. Yeah, yeah, early dementia, what this have you. Is... Some semi say, <laughs> I want to know so I can live my life accordingly. Some say I don't want to live my whole life thinking that I have an increased, uh, you know, uh, hereditary uh, predisposition to a certain disease. Um, yeah. So, I mean, what? I don't know. Clint, I, I, this is more of an open-ended question. What are your thoughts? I mean, I feel like um, uh, we know that precision medicine, personalized medicine, is is is, is the way uh, of, of how medicine's going, but. Um, uh, this idea of data being, uh, or patients' rights to data, is that, how, how, do, how do we, well, as a physician, how do we approach that, that conversation with our patients? Because uh, on a very elementary level, yeah, I think oftentimes have concerns with me about getting genetic testing. It's like Pandora's mm -hmm. box, that's how much information, just because you have the information, can you interpret it? Like, I, I see this all the time. Sometimes patients get the, access to the EMR records before I get to look at it. So when I do a, oh. a lab, um, it comes to the portal. Right. Yeah. Um, and then I've been that know, patient before getting on my yeah. refresh, refresh, refresh until it, until it comes through. Right. But a lot of patients don't have uh, the education on the understanding to, to know what is yeah. important, what's not important or just the perspective. So um, by the time I get to them, they've talked to their aunt and Googled everything. Dr. Google. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, we could talk for, I'm so sure, a all really long time. Is all access to information a good thing, I guess, is, is in the information age? I mean, my default is it's a gray area. It's complex, right? Like, it's, it shouldn't be we're not sharing any data and it all has to flow through a incredibly regimented system and a patient can't have autonomy and agency and kind of ownership over their information. That's not the world that we want to live in in the future. On the flip side of that, we don't want medicine uh, to be practiced and the, the experience of patients to be thrown information that they're not prepared for or to have that even worse impacted decision that they make in managing their own healthcare in their day-to-day -day life that's not the right or the best decision for their health. So I think in either one of those extremes, neither one of those is good. The, the balance probably exists somewhere in the middle and it, it depends you know, on, on what the specific use case is for that data. There's certain types of data that you do want to have a lot of support and um, professional guidance through as a, as a patient understands that, particularly for genetics. I mean, this is relevant in medicine, but even more so in genetics because the information that people can find out um, can be life-changing. 
Uh, but I think what we do need to do is respect the individual's choice in a lot of those decisions. And some people will want to know and, and they should be able to find out. There's a lot to kind of unpack. And this is what makes healthcare as an industry hard to innovate in because you've, you've got multiple pillars of how to make a model work. You've got economic models that are more complex than any other industry where you've got the payers separated from the people that are providing the solution, which is separated from the people and they're receiving it and using the solution. So finding economic models that work for a business is one challenge. You've also got you know, this duty of care. We're talking about something as important as a person's health and the way they live their life. This is potentially life and death situations. So this is, you know, enormous, the, the amount of responsibility on companies trying, digital health companies trying to innovate in this space is, the bar is high and it should be high and it needs to be high and it needs to be done in collaboration with providers and clinicians. At the same time, we need to also work towards what is a good future look like for health? What is an ideal system look like for an individual accessing healthcare? Is that a, um, you know, a central repository with all of this information where a, an individual can have their history, their genetics, their um, environmental data, and we can use that in responsible privacy preserving ways for AI and predictive medicine. We will not ah, get was, to- I was, I was waiting for you to get to that. I was waiting for you to get to that. Yeah, we will not get to predictive medicine without this. And so, mm -hmm. you know, for medicine to really like take this enormous leap Le into the future, we need to be able to find a way to get there. Um, and that's hard, right? That's, that's, this is not an easy thing to do in this industry. So I think AI benefits by having a bunch of data in one place and able to make, you know, use algorithms to make decisions, whether it's health or finance or whatever, how, how would you foresee, um, well, you're probably doing it now with, with, with your, your program. How do you foresee like practically that happening? Um, I guess, can you give us an example of how it would work with uh, one of your pregnant patients? Yeah. So I, I'll say, straight up that this is aspirational. We do not have live products in market today, okay. but, but ideally AI driven, but right. How, how, how are we thinking about this vision of the future? Um, so an example during pregnancy is preeclampsia. We don't really have a good handle on what causes preeclampsia. There are genetic risk factors for that. Mm -hmm. There's environmental risk factors for that. It's a complex condition. There are um, you know, things that a, a, a patient would need to work with their doctor to, to kind of manage that through pregnancy and diagnose that. And so with our system and this, this idea that you know, having all the data together in one place, you can help identify that but combining a medical record, combining the genetic data of that pregnant woman with outcomes data of preeclampsia, you know, postpartum preeclampsia, prenatal hypertension, where right. does it fit on that scale, as well as deep environmental measurements um, for her blood pressure through pregnancy, medication that she might've been on compliance, kind of having all of this together, you can start to build 
more a more complex picture of what might be the triggers, what might be the factors, what might be the mechanisms mm. behind preeclampsia, and then take that full circle to the beginning of a pregnancy to be able to say, okay, you might have a an incredibly low risk. It's not ruled out. You need to keep, right. you know, working with your doctor on this, but stratify out maybe this other group of women are at extremely high risk of preeclampsia let's pay attention to that um through pregnancy and you know in the u.s today we have one of the worst maternal mortality rates in the world it's conditions like preeclampsia that we need to be able to diagnose better listen to our patients have that Mm -hmm. data-driven kind of approach to identifying the right patients and making sure they get the right care and also as a predictive model too. So um, exactly. Dr. Sagar doesn't know what preeclampsia is, but it's usually <laughs> elevated Sorry. blood pressure, protein in the urine, um, and it can eventually lead to eclampsia, which is maternal seizures and all kinds of other uh, complications. But um, you know, a risk factor for preeclampsia is having preeclampsia in previous pregnancies, and you know, there used to be some consideration for. Uh, the father being the culprit, but, you know, like you said, we really don't know the cause, but I think, um, you know, I think we've seen some success with systems-based uh, programs like, uh, like CHF. Um, I think like in-stage renal disease, you know, once we work in a system type of, yeah. uh, you know, you know, population-based medicine, I, I think that that helps. Uh, so maybe that's the future. I think that pregnancy, is a uh, an interesting um, you know way to start because it's sure. uh, you know there's not that many other moving parts outside of the patient and the family and, and the obstetrician. So, where are you now in terms of your uh, I mean, in terms of the company in terms of um, development now? I mean, where in fact like where are you located and and what what are your uh, kind of goals or where, where you know where, where you are heading in terms of uh, milestones, et cetera. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So we're a distributed team between Seattle and the Bay Area. Mm. Um, We have a private beta that we're running right now. We're still accepting for that private beta. So Mm. if people want to sign up, um, you know, I'm sure it can be in the show notes, but uh, we have a sign up on our on our website for that private beta. Um, that's to test, you know, our security, our yeah. privacy, you know, everything around our system before going live more broadly at the end of this year, later half of this year. You know, for me, uh, just very interesting. You obviously sound like someone who started very much in academics. Um, mm-hmm. How did you make that jump to, um, I don't say entrepreneurship, but, you know, looking at, in term, starting your own company and, and making that leap from pure academics and then private industry, right? Um, is that yeah. is part parcel of your personality or is that something that just based upon what you saw and the need in healthcare? It's a bit of both. Uh, I, I think I loved academia. I've loved all of the transitions that I've had throughout my career. Right. Uh, I would always tell, you know, whoever, like transitions make you, help make you unique. And those are good things, even though they're uncomfortable, they allow you to bring different perspectives. I like that, I'm being uncomfortable. I think as physicians, a lot of times we do get comfortable, you know. Uh, yeah. Clinton has an easy chair, you know, in his office. He gets a little too comfortable sometimes, I'm joking. <laughs> but, you know, we, we actually, this is not about us, so we can talk about some other time, but we, we made many transitions through our career um, and continue to do so. Uh, but I always hear the time and time again, uh, from entrepreneurs and, and, and visionaries and, and is that, you know, make yourself uncomfortable. So I, 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 I yes. appreciate you saying that. 
No, I think, and being, being okay with being uncomfortable is a core part of my personality. It's something that I've been exposed to again and again and again. And it's this idea that um, in, it's in those moments of uncomfortableness when you're outside of your comfort zone and you're pushing something and you've got a good reason to do that. Um, that's where you grow and you learn and you experience new things and you have new perspectives on whatever it is. And so... Right leaving academia I went through one of those big transitions and it's it's always been driven by looking ahead and seeing this is something that is literally going to change the world I want to be a part of that um and so first that was the wave of genetic technologies now it's this idea of um you know, health information. We're, we're living in an incredibly digital society. You've got AI, ML. You, I, I grew up as a digital native and then I became pregnant. I, was, I had a pregnancy and a little baby boy during the pandemic. And it was like stepping back in time uh, with the systems that I had to use and, and kind of how right. that fit together. And it was incredibly jarring as an experience. And I, I yeah. see the movement of our world as we know it, our you know, becoming digital and, and, and everything, all the promises that that entail, like, why can't we take something as important as human health mm-hmm. and impact that for the better? And I think um, to your testament, the, the pregnant patient is probably the best, probably one of the best patient advocates for themselves, mm-hmm. I find in my experience, obviously, um, one because of uh, the age, education, demographics, but I think, right. in, yeah, I think um, that's probably the probably the most successful transition from a um, you know such a stagnated healthcare system to something that yeah. uh, will benefit not only patients who have access to uh, to quality care, but also patients who don't have access. So I can see how something like that, like this, would benefit patients who you know don't have the education or the resources. Yes. Um, so I think, I think this is uh, pretty interesting and I'm, I'm happy to see where it goes. Yeah, because we, yeah. we, we, uh, we certainly talk a lot about that on our show about um, inequalities in healthcare and how, you know, especially COVID-19 has shed, you know, light on these. It's become cliche almost at this point, but um, if something like technology can kind of leaven the playing field, we're all for mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. You know, tell us a little bit yeah. about, you mentioned the website, you know, what are your, do you have any social media handles, you know, LinkedIn, Instagram, or anything for your, your company itself, if anyone that's interested out there, our, our listeners could. could you still have that. MySpace, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. I think I'm the only one on MySpace. Yeah, yeah. MySpace. What was the other one? Friendster? Remember Friendster? It was Friendster. Friendster. Yeah. Ooh. America online with the dial-up, you know, so we have lived through, uh, I still told my son that uh, I got an email address in my sophomore year, junior in college. He couldn't believe it. You know, he's in, he's had email since he's in third grade. So it it is. I just made an email for my little baby boy. We're getting ourselves, you know, so yeah. 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 But where, where where can our listeners uh, find out more? Um, Yeah. So join trellishealth.com. And there's a link to the beta sign up there. Um, we there's you know social media links there as well. Uh, and then I'm also pretty active on Twitter. Uh, people can follow me at Estelle J. J. Giraud. Do patients Sorry. sign up or physicians or who who's the target uh, for, for beta testing audience? Yeah. Patients, pregnant women. Okay. Yeah. So women currently pregnant. Awesome. No, I hope uh, I hope someone will take it. But that. that and you said you're very active on Twitter. I um, 
I'm very active on following people on Twitter, but I, I have I think I've had like three tweets in my time. So I, I should be more social media um, savvy, but I sadly spend a lot of my time just putting pictures of my dog on Instagram. Um, in my spare There's mind. always a need for that. <laughs> there is, there is. My, my golden doodle is, uh, is a good stress relief, you know, along with my family. So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you'd be surprised how many... I mean, you know, some of your dogs have millions of followers. It's, it's incredible. You know? so, uh, yeah, I'm one of those people that I don't post about my dog, but I definitely consume a lot of dog pictures on Instagram. My wife and I will send pictures back and forth or videos of dogs all the time. And she's someone who went from not even sure if she wanted the dog uh, to, you know, the dog being the most important part of the family. My son, a close second, and myself. I really think you made a mistake on the name of the dog, though. That's the he gave the dog an old black man's name. His, his name, name was born. He came from Tennessee. What's his uh, name? Peter told me his name was Otis. Otis. Otis, and he is. Uh, he he's was one of those elderly. Who, he's an elderly black man. He's an he's an elderly black gentleman uh, at, from at Tennessee. Harvard. Yeah, yeah, but he came from I love Tennessee. It. This is <laughs> it fits him very it. well. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so so what's next for you? Um, heads down, just. You know, it, it, the the pace, so I was in a fast-growing company. The pace was insane. You make a leap into entrepreneurship or foundership, and it's, uh, I, I mean, I'm sure you guys, uh, you know, feel this as well, but um, there is never enough time in, in every day to do what Ever. I want to do. Sure. Awesome. Yeah. So it's not a sprint. It's a, it's a marathon, so to speak. We have to pace yourself. So, marathon where you run really 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 fast the whole time well we want to thank you so very much you know i mean obviously this is a very high level conversation i mean i think we could deep dive into many topics um at great length so i hope that you can come back again and, and talk to us some more and and tell us you know the progress you made but uh we very much learned something today a lot of times you know we interview guests and it's entertaining and, and we hope that our, our listeners learn something but i i think I can speak for uh, Clinton and I that we both uh, learned quite a bit. So thank I'm you very excited, yeah. for sharing your experiences. Yeah, very much. That's thank awesome. You. And I'm thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed this conversation. I I know this is a, you know, it's a, it's a hairy, big topic. And yes. I think conversations with all aspects of the everybody that's involved in this is, is what's going to make it ultimately. Absolutely. Good. So the consumers, the providers, as you mentioned, economic models, payers, and everyone in between. But um, uh, for us, yeah. it was fascinating. So thank you. Thank you very much. And uh, Thank you so much. Yeah. So uh, I will wrap us out of here. As uh, Wrap my, us out of uh, here. Wrap okay. us out of here. I'm, on behalf of my co-hosts and esteemed colleague, Dr. Clayton Coleman, I'm Dr. Stuart Slugger. This is Recommended Daily Dose. Thank you so much for listening. Please don't forget to rate, subscribe, and listen. Find us on YouTube. Find us on Apple Podcasts. Spotify, and we will see you next time. Be well.